0: Welcome back to the Fairy Tellers Podcast. Today, uh, we've got a little bit more of a heavy conversation, probably, that's going to go on. But within that heavy and important conversation, lots of really good stories and fun stories. So I'm looking forward to it. And I think it'll be a good discussion.
1: Yes. Right now, Jeff and I are producing this podcast from America. Because that's where we live.
0: Comma, United States of.
1: Oh, that's true. Uh, yeah, we're in the United States of America. And right now in the U.S., there's a lot of protests going on. And there's a lot of talk even online, a lot of racial equality, uh, societal changes, social justice. And one thing that I've noticed a lot online and even in different corporations and stuff are people examining where they fit into that conversation of racism, racial equality, what they can do to change. And I was thinking about that a lot this past week or the last couple of weeks, thinking about what we on the podcast could do to talk about some of those social changes and racism And oddly enough, a change.org campaign kind of came into my social media feed that I was like, wow, this has a ton to do with folklore (laughs) and the topics we discuss. And it it doesn't seem quite like it. And it was a change.org for Splash Mountain Ride in Disneyland to change it to something that is less problematic
0: <laughs> yeah i was so confused when i saw that too because i was like what what does splash mountain have to do with anything because i've been on it but i also don't pay attention to anything but like dropping down the uh you know like the big splashes and whatever at the end like i didn't know what it was from and i guess it's from like song of the south yes or whatever but it's like i've never seen that movie i didn't know what that was all about i guess like i probably had somewhere in the back of my mind like oh yeah that's what the Thing is based around, but going through and you just see like rabbits and weird stuff going on. And I'm like, I have no idea what I'm seeing right now.
1: Yeah. And you hear like the Zippity-Doo-Dah song. Yeah. And if the, when I was a kid, the only reference, cause I, I was born in the late eighties. So me growing up, the only connection that I had at all to that ride was the song Zippity-Doo-Dah. Yeah. Because... My parents had, like, a sing-along tape. Uh-huh. And so it was like I didn't even have the, like, any visual images, just, like, the song.
0: The audio, yeah.
1: Yeah. And so I think a lot of people, especially our generation and younger, they have no real knowing of why, of what the Splash Mountain ride at Disneyland is about or where yeah. it came from. And if they do For the, sure. Yeah, and if they do, it's because they've seen, like, kind of vague articles written online about, like, oh... Like Disney's top ten most racist movies.
0: Yeah, <laughs> like exactly. It's like that's the thing, it's like Song of the South. I only know anything about it because they talk about how, you know, it's never been like reproduced because apparently it's got all this racist stuff in it. So it's like because it was never reproduced and everything else, like I never saw it, I have no idea what it's a what it's about, even or Yeah.
1: I was actually shocked to find out and we'll go back in time and discuss more about this. The last time that it was ever like released to the public was 1984. Uh-huh. They had Song of the South in theaters. And what's upsetting about 1984 that happening is the pushback that they received on it even in the 80s was yeah not that much pushback. Like yeah. the same groups that hated it when it came out in the 40s so were still upset about it in the 80s. Yeah. But also the same people who were like, oh, it's a classic. We're still enjoying it. Yeah. And I think thankfully Disney, even though it didn't have any real like extra pushback, Disney realized that they were like, yeah, this isn't good. We should bury this. But then oddly in, I think it was like the nineties, mm-hmm. they changed, they made the splash mountain ride. Because they wanted a flume ride.
0: Oh, wow. So I didn't realize that that's how recent that Splash Mountain was.
1: So Splash Mountain opened up in 1989. And it was because they wanted a flume ride. They wanted uh, something that had a drop in it. Mm -hmm. Because they wanted to get older people interested in going to the park instead of just like, children and parents of children they wanted like teenagers to want to go
0: yeah because you think of like the older and the oldest like disney rides it's like you know you're just like oh floating through like the scene or like pirates of the caribbean you're just like literally like just floating through and seeing the animatronic things walking around there's no like it's not like a roller coaster there's no excitement so they're trying to be like there's a big drop on this one so come and enjoy
1: yeah like come and see it and then it needed to be inside of critter country Mm. And they were reusing some of the animatronics that they already had from, I want to say it was like a Country Bear Jamboree story or something like that. Oh, yeah. They had like leftover animatronics or old animatronics from a different section of the park that were animals. Yeah. And so they wanted to use those. And so they came up with the idea of basing it off of the cartoon portion of the Song of the South movie. So you guys might be wondering, okay, but what does this have to do yeah, with folklore? That was going
0: to be my question, too. I was like, we suddenly became a Disney Parks podcast. But yeah, what, so I'm really <laughs> interested to know how this ties back into folklore.
1: So this year, I had made like a goal for myself that I was going to study more African and African-American folklore. And bring it up more on the podcast, because African folklore is actually one of the like least studied regional uh folklores and so a lot of the things that i have been looking at have been talking about a person called joel chandler harris and joel chandler harris is a very problematic figure in folklore history and we'll get into that more but If we go backwards, step by step from the ride, Splash Mountain. So it's based off the movie Song of the South that Disney made in the 40s. And Song of the South was based off of what are called Uncle Remus stories that were written down and recorded by Joel Chandler Harris. Disney read them when he was a child and he loved them. And he thought that they reflected a part of childhood in the United States that he was really nostalgic for. Yeah. um, Which we'll discuss why that's a problem. Um, (laughs) Oh, boy. And so he really wanted to make a movie based off of those stories that he really loved. And the person who kind of invented the character, Uncle Remus, and had recorded the stories was Joel Chandler Harris. Gotcha. Gotcha. One of the only good things that I'm going to say about Joel Chandler Harris, and it really is people who like uh, folklorists, they begrudgingly have to give him the tiniest amount of credit for this one thing. And that is that he was one of the first people who believed that the African-American tales and the tales of enslaved people in America... Actually came from Africa. Uh, Most people, when they would hear the stories, the African-American tales, they would think, oh, they either got them from Europe through, you know, being around the white Europeans in America, or they got yeah. them from uh, the Native Americans that also obviously lived in America. Right. Or they thought maybe these stories came through from India because some of them are similar to stories in the Thousand and One Nights. And nobody wanted to credit the stories that African-Americans told with a heritage from Africa. But Joel Chandler Harris, for not, I don't think he had a lot of evidence to support his claim, except that he really did feel that the stories had originated in Africa. And it wasn't until more recently that there's actually been proof and evidence that these stories were from Africa. Yeah. And so I thought before we kind of get in too deep into Uncle Remus and Joel Chandler Harris and why Splash Mountain should definitely refab (laughs) itself, I thought we would first... Tell a Tale from Africa. It's an Anansi story. People might be familiar with that name because like throughout the years, kind of the most common stories that people know from Africa is like, oh, was not there like a trickster spider? It's like, yes, that's Anansi. And so Jeff is going to tell us one of the first Anansi stories.
0: Yes, I'm excited. It's a good one. And one of the things I like about it, too, is the way that it starts. And maybe you'll have some insight into these kind of, like, beginnings and endings that they have. Because we have a lot of, you know, in European and other folklores like, once upon a time stuff. But this one starts with kind of a little saying just by the storyteller. Similar to once upon a time. It's like a meta part of the story. Yeah. So it starts with this little quote by the storyteller, we do not really mean, we do not really mean that what we are going to say is true. Which besides just sounding cool is like a cool idea too. It's like, listen, we know this isn't true, but it's fun. So here we go. So it starts off, Kwaku Anansi, or as he's known to his friends, simply Spider. He goes to Nyankapon the Sky God, and he's like, hey, Sky God, I want to buy your stories. And so the Sky God kind of looks at Anansi is like, uh, Do you think you're going to actually be able to buy them? And Anansi's like, Yeah, of course I will. So the sky god says to him, He's like, Great and powerful kings and whole towns and f- powerful families have come to try to buy these stories before. What makes you think that you can buy them? And so Anansi's like, Well, how much are they going to cost? And so the sky god is like, Well, you can only buy them with Onini the python, Osebo the leopard, Muatsia the fairy. And Moboro the hornets. And Anansi's like, easy peasy. I'll bring you all of these things. You know, what? I'll even throw in my own mother to sweeten the deal. And so this guy goes, all right then, you know, put your creatures where your mouth is. Bring the creatures to me and we'll give you the stories. And so Anansi goes and he tells his mother this plan. Like, hey, I'm going to try to buy the Sky God stories by getting these creatures. And also I'm going to give you to the Sky God as well for the stories. And she's apparently totally cool with it. Because it doesn't say anything about she's not. So then Anansi goes, and he consults his wife, whose name is Aso. And that's one of my favorite things about this, too, is like everything has a name. Yeah. Anansi consults his wife, Also, and he's like, okay, I need a plan. I want to capture Onini the python. What should I do? And so his wife's like, okay, here's what you got to do. You got to cut off a palm branch and get some string creeper and then take that down to the stream. So he's like, okay. So he... Gets a palm branch, gets some string creeper, it takes it to the stream. And he's just walking along the stream, he starts having this like imaginary argument with his wife saying, like, Oh, no, no, no. Onini's way longer than this stick. You don't, there's no way that he's shorter than this stick. And Onini overhears him having this like fight with this imaginary person. He's like, what, what are you fighting about? He's like, Oh, pff, it's nothing. My wife thinks that this stick that I'm carrying is longer than you, but I think she's a liar. It's like, Nothing could be longer than you. And Onini, I guess it was playing into his vanity. bit. he's like, well, bring the stick over here and, and try to measure me. So he stretches himself out along the stick. And as he is stretching himself along the stick, Anansi takes the string creeper and like wraps it all around from tail to head and ties Onini to the stick. And he's like, ha, you fool. I'm going to take you and sell you to the sky god for his stories. And so he does. He takes him to the sky god. And the sky god's like, all right, I've got the got Onini the python. What remains still remains. So Anansi's like, all right, Next. The hornets. So he goes back to his wife also, and he asks, okay, what are we going to do to get the hornets? And so his wife's like, I've got a plan. Go and get a gourd, fill it with some water, and then take that off, and, and you can use that to capture the hornets. And Nancy's like, ah, I got it. So he does what she says. He goes and gets a gourd, fills it with water, and he heads out. And as he's walking along, he comes across the hornets, uh, Moboro, the hornets. And when he sees the hornets, he takes the gourd and he splashes them with water and then dumps the rest of the gourd on himself and covers himself with a plantain leaf. And he's like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, it's raining. Hey, hornets, can't you see that it's raining? Look at me. I'm hiding under this leaf to get out of the rain. You, you should go in this gourd over here and, and get out of the rain. And the, and the hornets are like, oh yeah, we are soaking wet. Oh, thanks. So they zip in and... And fly into the gourd, and once they're inside, Anansi pops his hand over the the entrance of the gourd and traps them. And again, he's like, "Ha, you fools! I'm going to take you to the sky god in order to get his stories." And so Anansi takes the gourd full of hornets to the sky god, and the sky god's all right. There remains what still remains. And so Anansi goes back to his wife. He's like, "All right, now we got to figure out how to catch Osebo the leopard." And so also his wife says. Okay, what you need to do is you need to go and dig a hole. And Anansi's like, okay, wait, stop right there. I think I see where this is going. And he sets out to go and capture the leopard. Anansi goes off to search for leopard tracks. And he finds a place where he sees the tracks of a leopard walking to and fro. And he's like, okay, this is a path the leopard takes. And he digs a hole right along this path. And then covers it with like sticks and and branches and leaves and whatnot. So that he can lay a trap for the leopard. As you see in the cartoons all the time. yes. And so he goes back home for the night. And then early the next day, right as the sun's coming up, he goes back out and he finds the leopard that has fallen into his trap in the pit. And you for know, some reason he decides he wants to mock the leopard. He's like, oh, leopard, come on, man. I told you not to get drunk. You're totally wasted. That's why you fell into this pit. It's like, and if I let you out, you're just going to come after me and you're going to chase me and my kids. And he's like, I can't let you out today. And was like, no, no, I won't chase you or your kids. I promise, I promise. And so Nancy's like... Okay, if you promise, I'll let you out. So he puts in two sticks into the bottom of the pit to the edge so that the leopard Osebo can climb up. And just as Osebo starts climbing up, Anansi lifts up his knife and whacks Osebo right on the head, knocking him unconscious. Which I was like, whoa, this totally escalated to like using (laughs) knives and things like that. I was like, all these other things have had more of a, you know, I guess he trapped him in the pit, but he can't carry a whole pit to the sky god. So, after knocking Osebo unconscious, takes him up to the sky god, and the sky god's like, okay, I've got the leopard, but what remains, still remains. So, Anansi comes back down, and now he's got to catch Mwatiya, the fairy. And he's learned enough tricks from his wife, also, by this point, that he doesn't even go to consult her, he's just, like, got his own plan all figured out. And so, what he does is he carves out an aqua child, which is, like, a little wooden basically a doll and he covers it in sticky fluid.
1: Was it? Oh, I was like, was it sap? Like I was trying to remember what it like, what the sticky fluid was. Like if it was oh, sap I don't, or honey or, or it didn't say it just said, sticky. it, it didn't
0: stuff. say in the like actual text, it just said a sticky fluid. And I was like, you know, he's a spider. Maybe it's like webs or something, but that's, that's not true. really a fluid.
1: Spiders do have sticky webs.
0: Yeah. So it's like, you know, we could tie uh-huh. it in thematically. Yeah. But whatever it is, it's some sort of sticky substance. And he mashes up yams, puts it in the doll's hand, puts the doll in a basin, and sets that basin at the base of an Odum tree where fairies are known to want to hang out and play. And he ties a string around the doll's waist and goes off and hides kind of off in the distance. Which is like, this is a pretty complex plan compared to the other ones. So after a while, the fairies come down to play. Moatia comes around and her sister is with her and sees this doll standing there with the food in his hand and is like, oh, I'm a little hungry. So Moetia goes up and asks the doll, "Is like, hey, can I have some of this delicious mash? And so Anansi gives a a small little tug on the string that makes the doll like nod its head. And so the fairy's like, oh, great, thanks, and eats a bunch of the mash and then thanks the doll for sharing the mash, but the doll doesn't respond. And so the fairy's like a little bit offended and is like, this is kind of rude. It turns to her sister and is like, this, I, I said thank you to this person for sharing their mash and they did not respond. What do you think I should do? And so the sister's like, you should smack them. And so <laughs> Motia the fairy just like <gasps> hauls back and tries to slap the doll in the face. But when it hits the doll's face, because it's covered in a sticky fluid, the hand just sticks. So it's like Motia's hand is sticking to the face of this doll. And so she turns back to her sister like, my hand is sticking to the doll's face. What should I do? It's like, well, smack it again with your other hand. So she reels back and whacks, smacks the other side of the face with her other hand. And now both of her hands are stuck to this doll's face on the sticky fluid. And she turns to her sister again. It's like, now both of my hands are stuck. What should I do? And the sister comes along and starts trying to push the doll in the stomach to separate it from her sister's hands. And of course gets her own hands stuck to the doll. At this point, Anansi comes out from hiding and ties both the fairies up and, mocks him again he's like ha you fools I'm gonna take you to the sky god in exchange for his stories so on his way to take the fairies to the sky god he stops by to pick up his mother and he's like all right mom I got the fairies they're the last thing come along we're gonna take you and the fairies up to the sky god in order to get his stories and she's just totally going along with it and so Anansi hands over these fairies and his mother And the sky god is like, oh man, this has literally never happened before. I don't know what to do. So he calls all his elders together and kind of asks for their advice. He's like, many great kings have come, tried to buy my stories, but they were all unable to. But Anansi brought me Onini the python, Osebo the leopard, Moatia the fairy, Moboro the hornets. And he's given me even his own mother of his own free will. I guess we just have to sing his praises. So they all start cheering and they're like, yay, he did it. And the Sky God says, I take my Sky God stories and I present them to you. From now on, they will no longer be called stories of the Sky God. They will be spider stories. And the storyteller ends with another cool little saying where he says, this is my story, which I have told. If it be sweet or if it be not sweet, take some elsewhere and let some come back to me. The end.
1: Awesome. So the reason why I had you start with that story is because it has all these different elements and motifs that pop up in a lot of what later became known as African-American folk Mm -hmm. tales. Basically, anywhere where the African diaspora are, there are stories like this because they all came from... Africa, and a lot of them started off as Anansi stories, even if they have different names, it's Mm -hmm. the same kind of storytelling, complex trickster god. So and one thing I wanted to talk about, like, he's a spider, but he's also like a man. One thing in my research that I thought was really interesting was that when uh, African people would be talking about Anansi with a capital A, because... Where the word comes from, it does mean spider. It does mean spider, yeah. Yeah, but it means spider when it's not a capital A. Right. So uh, when they'd be talking about Anansi, they would say like, oh, he was a spider. But he was like kind of a human and a spider. And people kind of were like, I don't know what that means. You know, like translation-wise, somebody who didn't come from that culture is like, "I, I I can't visualize that. And when they had people, African people actually draw what they're talking about, it really is like it's like the the face of a man and like maybe even some like bodily features of a man. But he has spider like arms arms and legs, arms and legs. B- but they really do mean like, no, he's like half spider, half man. Like yeah. it's like uh, a mix. And but it's a
0: cool visual.
1: Yeah. And another thing that I think is really interesting about their storytelling God, and then he becomes the character in the story. Uh Uh-huh. What is so fascinating to me about that is, again, we get this, like, tie-in with storytelling and weaving. Which, Mm. (laughs) it's like in all these different places where it's more tied in with, like, textiles and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Here, it's just so fascinating that we have storytelling, but also the imagery of, like, something that, like, weaves, weaves out. Weaves a
0: web, yeah. Yeah,
1: that, like, is a creating something, that storytelling yeah. is more than just, like, uh, like words. You're actually, like, creating something out of thin air, whether that's the magic of fabric making or, um, like, a spider's web.
0: That's cool. There were so many things in this story, too, that I was like, uh, it made me want to do research as far as like, like I'd seen, you know, Anansi means spider. And I'm wondering if all of these other names, like Onini the python and Osebo, whatever, if those are the names for the animals. Yeah. But then it was also like his mom's name is Nisia, but his mom is probably also a spider. So it was also kind of like, oh, maybe they just do have names. And like the fact they called the, the sky god at one point, Nyankapon, but then another time his name is like, is called Nyame like they from then on they kind of say take him to Nyame or they even just say sky god but they kind of use like Nyankapon and Nyame as like interchangeable with meaning the sky god so sometimes it was hard to you know it's like I, it was one of those things where yeah. it's like I know that there's more here that I just don't understand and I want to understand what's going on with yeah. that.
1: I would say without doing any research on it the different names for the sky god would probably be kind of like the same way that people are like like God, Yahweh, Almighty Father, mm. like yeah. So I'm like, uh, without doing any research at all on that, that's that would be like my guess. But yeah, if somebody wants to <laughs> look into that. Uh, they can. But yeah, there's a lot when you look at like a different cultures folklore. There's always a lot that you know that you're just not getting. Yeah, that by. By not knowing any of, like, the back information, you're, like, missing parts of it. And that's the same way that, like, we talk about, like, folklore, our memes, that Uh there's cultural information that's, like, encoded in there, but, like, if you don't know what is being referenced back to, like, in the meme...
2: Yeah,
0: you you, don't understand it. Yeah,
1: you're looking at the meme, and even something like the face somebody's making in the picture or whatever might be funny... I, or you kind of get the the main idea of it yeah but you don't fully understand it or appreciate it because you don't know what it's referencing like back yeah
0: to. yeah
1: um i just watched jurassic park for the first time so now i understand a whole lot of <laughs> games <laughs> like More objects than,
0: in mirror are closer than they appear
1: <laughs> or they're like that crazy son of a bitch he did it <laughs> <laughs> uh there, man! The whole time I was watching, I was like, "Oh my gosh!" There's that meme, and my husband was like, "This movie's been out for a very long time. (laughs) Pathetic that it took this
0: long." It's crazy too to go into it for the first time and like recognize parts from the memes.
1: Yeah, because
0: it's also no like I love it. Like I love like Star Wars memes and whatever memes. But then like when you go back and watch the movies, or like Lord of the Rings memes, you go back and watch the movie, and then it's kind of like. Oh, that's the part from the meme. I was like, "Dang it!" It kind of takes me out of this movie that I love so much because I'm thinking about this other thing that I love. They're yeah. so necessarily intertwined, but I wish I could, you know, disengage from one half and the other when I'm, you when know, you're watching the movies the movie. exactly. Yeah. But uh, anyway,
1: yeah. So anyway, when. People outside of the culture are the ones recording the stories. And, again, we've talked about this before, that, like, if somebody outside of a culture is the first one that is recording the stories, they are always accidentally putting themselves or their yeah. values or whatever inside of the story. They're reflecting back, like, on themselves. Yeah. Um, like, and... This part doesn't can, make
0: sense to me, so yeah. gone.
1: As I was doing my research, there were a couple of essays that I was reading in the book, The Annotated African-American Folk Tales. And this is a fairly recent book. It was made in like the 2000s. Henry Louis Gates Jr. and Maria Tatar worked together on this one. Yes, we what? have talked about Maria Tatar before. I was going to say, before. yeah, Maria and, Tatar
0: sounds so familiar. I've heard yeah. that before on a podcast somewhere, probably. <laughs>
1: Because I'm like, she comes up a lot because she's a folklorist that's done, like, a lot of work. Um, we've referenced her in several of the kind of Beauty and the Beast-based um, oh, gotcha. ones because she's written a lot of books and then a lot of research. And so she worked with Henry Louis Gates Jr. and that name should also.
0: Yeah, why does that?
1: So the name Henry Louis Gates Jr. should sound familiar to people. He is an African-American scholar, um, literary critic he also was the host of pbs's show finding your roots Ah.
0: so if you've
1: ever seen like uh anderson cooper being told about how his family owned slaves in the past, the person who was breaking him that news was Henry (laughs) (laughs) Louis Gates Jr.
0: Yeah, Wow, so they really had like a dream team come together on this book.
1: Oh yeah, like Maria Tatar and Henry Louis Gates Jr., yeah. Um, And as I was reading the book and several of the essays that they were writing out, they pointed out something, and I believe it was Henry Louis Gates Jr. essay at the beginning that I was reading when he pointed out that even though it is... Very problematic and difficult that um, usually it was white people going in, not not scholars, not folklorists, not anthropologists, just white people who wanted to collect stories and sell stories yeah. um, from other cultures. Even though there are a lot of problems with that, and it, it means that they aren't getting really good copies of the stories. Mm-hmm. They still are capturing enough of the story that researchers can go back and find those elements and proof of like elements and motifs and uh, yeah. types within the stories, even if the stories themselves have been somewhat mangled by the people who are writing them not really understanding what they were writing, yeah. Um, or like how important what they're writing because those people weren't privy to the information of like the cultural context uh, of like the story. Yeah. But there's still value in the work that they did.
0: Right. Because like so you can you can still find the elements that are similar and in- –
1: match them up to match them
0: up to other stories and other places and start to make connections, which is what they're all trying to do.
1: One thing that I love about reading stories from cultures that I know less about Uh is that they will have story elements in them that I've never seen before or that are new to me or like creative ways, like with this and Nancy story of like capturing the different animals. yeah Cuz like you said the like the one with the le- le- the leopard where he's like, "Oh, I'm going to dig a hole." And we're like, "Ah, oh, we've all seen that on cartoons." Yeah. But I absolutely love the one with the snake where he's just like, "Oh, my wife thinks that uh like the stick is longer longer than
0: you you, it's like oh yeah well i'll just stretch myself out along i was like yeah i've never seen that before that was really cool
1: or even the like splashing water like on himself yeah
0: and like the hornets (laughs) hornets.
1: it reminds me of those videos where somebody like throws a towel on top of somebody in the store and on
0: themselves and And then they pull it off and they're both looking around like who's throwing towels around here
1: yeah that's exactly what now we know
0: where they got the idea from
1: yeah from a nancy throwing like water on people
0: and it's also interesting too. It's just as interesting. I think it's kind of more interesting, the unique things. But then also you have that moment where there's like things that are familiar, like the fairies. You're like, oh, fairies are a thing in the African folklore as well. Yeah. And seeing how fairies, again, are similar and different across and between cultures or whatever.
1: Yeah, and it's kind of like, that's kind of like the closest word to describe those Yeah. kind of like otherworldly creatures of yeah. like, like, you're more of a, a nature spirit, but, you're like, that's mischievous and... Yeah, That's of,
0: I didn't think about that, too, the difficulty of like, translation. It's like, that it wasn't called a fairy. It's probably its own thing, but it's kind of close to a fairy.
2: Yeah, in the sense
0: we talked about, too, it's kind of like the, the chaotic, neutral sort of a thing, where it was like, at first, the fairy lo- really liked the doll because it was sharing the food, but then it didn't appreciate that it didn't respond to being thanked, so it decided to, like, slap it in the face. It's like, that's very keeping with you know fairies in other cultures so it makes sense why they'd be like you know what this totally sounds like a fairy to me
1: yeah and that's uh they also apparently there's like a a dwarf kind of equivalent also of like a like a an earth like an earth creature that Uh like like dwells in the earth and so it's interesting how it's like the same type of imaginary beings yeah (laughs) Seem to appeared. like pop up because I mean we've even talked about how like that concept of fairies and like fairies that belong to like a tree or like a tree spirit. Yeah, were found like like all over. Yeah, the world. Um, and so it is interesting how like I don't know that we kind of perceive magic in nature and yeah, like personify it in different mm-hmm. ways. I think that's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, One of the biggest problems with uh, people who are outside of African cultures and especially um, in people who are recording African-American tales and tales of people who were enslaved and like forced not to have an education is that the people who are recording the stories perceived them as dumb, as like not as intelligent. And I mean, I would see a similar problem happen like when I was living in Thailand. A lot of the times, you know, I'd be at a market or like a watt, a famous, like some kind of a tourist place where white people were interacting with the local Thai people. And the white person would be getting frustrated because they would think that they were talking to like someone who was stupid and not understanding what they were saying. Because the person that they were talking to, English was their second language. So their yeah. English didn't sound as good as the, like, white person's English. And so they right. would be thinking, like, why is this Thai person so dumb? And it's like, they're not dumb. They speak two languages. Yeah. <laughs> like, the fact that there's that that divide where they're like, oh, your English doesn't sound as high or educated as mine. Therefore you must not be a very intelligent person. Yeah. And it's like, oh, that's, it's so wrong to like think that way. And it's frustrating to see it like still happening today that there's that like misconception. And so the people who were recording these stories at first, you know, they didn't see a whole lot of value in them. Except that they were exotic, they were new, they were different, but they didn't see the depth in them because they perceived that the people they were collecting them from were intellectually beneath them. Yeah. And what people are finding more and more as they're studying them today is just how complex the system of folk tales are. Mm-hmm. For instance, there's this whole section that we're probably at some point going to do a podcast episode about because I absolutely love these tales. Um, they're called dilemma tales. Okay. And basically what they are is they would be stories that people would be sitting around in a group telling these stories. Somebody would say a dilemma tale. And the purpose of it was to introduce a problem and then force the community then to have a conversation about the problem Mm -hmm. and they would all discuss it amongst themselves to figure out like what their values as a community were like what they valued the highest and therefore how the story should end yeah or like you'd have a story where like three people worked together in different ways to like save a person's life Uh but only one of those people could be rewarded like the leader's daughter, or something, as a reward for doing this. And they would say, like, which person deserves the daughter at the end of the story? Yeah. Because of what they did to save their life. And so the community right. would have a discussion about, like, the dilemma. And the story then was just a vehicle for the community coming together and discussing where everybody sat values wise and what they want to have like as a community. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. That's using story as like a very powerful tool. Another thing that they're finding inside of the stories is that their stories usually have a lot of contradictions like within themselves, um, characters that are having conflicts with them themselves or even, um, just contradictory conflicts theme wise. Uh And again, like those stories were being used to bring the listeners into discussion with their values, with how they would solve a problem. And then there are some stories where one character would be facing trials and those trials represented the trials and problems that we all hold within ourselves. Fighting, oh, wow. fighting the good and the bad that's within yeah. each of us. And yeah. so the the idea that African stories were like, oh, these are just quaint little exotic tales about animals from far distant lands. Like, mm-hmm. no, stupid. <laughs> like, yeah, They just were not like understanding like the depth in these stories because they were outside of the um, culture. Yeah. One of the characters that remains one of the most complex characters is a Nancy. Because a lot of the times a Nancy was being used as kind of a stand-in character to represent humanity. And
2: Uh. like
1: the issues like within humanity. And the story of a Nancy going to get those stories and Mm -hmm. then to make them his story. Was yeah. also to make them the human family's stories, right? That he was like taking that and giving it, uh, giving ownership to those stories to, the to people, people,
0: rather than like the the sky god.
1: Yeah, that and that that power to create was like given to, to the people. The people. That's cool. Uh, and so, and Nancy was such an important character that you see him pop up in other cultures is like aunt Nancy, because like the name got brought over. Uh... (laughs) So there are a couple different kind of myths about like African tales becoming the stories of African Americans. Mm -hmm. One of the myths and that a lot of people Especially at the time when they were saying, oh, none of these stories came from Africa. They're all like the stories of America, the, the native peoples of this land yeah. and the Europeans. It's, it's more of them mixing together. And therefore, like these stories belong to all of America. Yeah. Uh, people who believed that uh, one of the myths that they would tell to kind of take those stories away from African-American people is that, oh, well, they couldn't have brought stories from Africa because of how they were brought over on the ships. They were like, oh, well, people would separate them so that they weren't near people who spoke their same language. Mm -hmm. And so that would have stopped all communication from happening. And (laughs) chances are they were hearing the stories, like the the white people were telling each other and that's that's where they got their stories. Or So there's this like myth that the white enslavers were like purposefully splitting people up by languages. Yeah. But there is absolutely no proof that that's true. That was right. just a myth that somebody came up with to take ownership one. of the stories <laughs> away from African-American
0: people. Yeah, and a stupid one that doesn't make sense because it's like you can still remember a story for a long time and then eventually tell it to somebody later on. Like, it's just dumb. It's just like, not only is there no evidence for it, but even if that is true that that happened, as far as like being separated by language and stuff, it still doesn't prove the point they're trying to prove. That's like, it couldn't have come from Africa.
1: Yeah. Well, and not to mention like the idea that these people were being told stories from like white enslavers. Like, do you think that like, somebody was going into their quarters and being like, I thought I would tell you the story of Cinderella. Like, no, (laughs) no one was doing that. The absolute opposite of that would happen where people who would, the white people were like, oh, I'm going to have like this person come and like watch my kids. That's going to be their job is to like be either the wet nurse for my child, the nanny caregiver for my child. Uh huh. Those... Like Africans and African Americans were telling their stories to the kid- the white kids that they were watching, so yeah. it absolutely it did not go the other way, <laughs>
2: yeah,
1: <laughs> uh, and so that, as a theory, like it's so wrong not to mention that for the exact same reasons that we talked about just a couple minutes ago about how people were like. Like, oh, they don't speak English, therefore, like, they must not be, like, intelligent. That same kind of mentality also went the other way, where, like, the white people in the South didn't really fully understand language, dialect, any of that. Mm -hmm. Like, they, to them, all of the people that were being enslaved came from the same place, must all have, like, the same... Language and background. Yeah. So the idea that people were splitting up by language so that they wouldn't communicate with each other, like, it's there's no evidence of that happening. Yeah. And we've talked about this before about how stories can travel so far because they are so lightweight. Like, they are in the mind of whoever is carrying them. Mm -hmm. And the exact same thing was true when they were forced on those boats to America, the African people still had the stories because they're within you. Your culture is buried deep within you. Yeah. The songs that you know, the, the things that you've already experienced like in your life, you carry those cultural things with you. Yeah, And of course that was one thing that they had to share with each other when they did have time to be together. Yeah. So Anansi was a character that traveled very, very well. And because it was a character that could so easily slip into different stories, Mm -hmm. and he, when I said earlier, like, he's very complex, I mean, like, in the story, sometimes he's a good guy that you're, like, rooting rooting for. And sometimes he's making choices based off of selfishness and greed. Yeah, in the same way that all of us are complex, where sometimes we are making a right choice for a good reason, uh-huh. and sometimes we are making a right choice for a wrong reason, or we're making <laughs> wrong choices, <laughs> choices for, for, for sure wrong the wrong reasons. reason. <laughs> we're all complex, and that's why a Nancy was such a complex character, and what a Nancy became in the African-American folklore was Br'er Rabbit. Or Br'er Rabbit. It stands for Brother Rabbit. Mm. Hmm. I never knew that. Yes. So Anansi... And it's just in this, like, just in, like, the South. Because if you go to, like, Jamaica, it's a different name. Different places and snuck into different stories. But Br'er Rabbit became... Nancy, but Brer Rabbit also represented the African people. And every time you have a predator that needs to be outsmarted in a story, the predator are white people, mm-hmm. they're enslavers. And the reason is because rabbits are helpless prey. And it reflected that same helplessness that the people felt, but yeah. also Br'er Rabbit was like a Nancy where he was a trickster. He was smart. He could outwit. Uh-huh. And those stories became a way for them to discuss things that they wanted to maybe do to the their enslavers yeah. or just kind of like wish fulfillment. Yeah. Yeah that they could even be talking about in front of yeah. white people and, and still they would have, no have idea. it hidden yeah, exactly it's like oh
0: it's a story about a rabbit and a hunter
1: yeah they even sometimes could use the stories to communicate with each other plans that they had for helping each other oh cool um, escape enslavement Yeah. Or various things like because they had this like cultural code that they could use. And so these stories were so important. And just a quick aside, I do want to say not all African-American folklore has to do with slavery. One thing that has been super upsetting about the Uncle Remus stories is that All that most white people know about African-American folklore in the United States is the Uncle Remus versions of the story, which is very upsetting because they were appropriated by a white man, Uh. Joel Chandler Harris. (laughs) So I want to talk now a little bit about Joel Chandler Harris. Yes. So Joel Chandler Harris was born in 1848 and he was born to a single mother. He was actually named after just the doctor that delivered him, um, Joel. <laughs> and his uncle's name was apparently Chandler, and his mother's name was Mary Harris. So Joel Chandler Harris, and he was just named after the doctor. And apparently Joel Chandler Harris was very sensitive to the fact that he was an illegitimate child.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And he. there were a lot of things about his childhood that I'm like that it is very sad because he did grow up. uh, His mom was an Irish immigrant. He grew up poor. He apparently had red hair and he had a stutter, which his daughter later said like, Oh, and because of those things, he really, he really felt for the black people in his life, which I'm like, no, <laughs> having a stutter is not the same <laughs> as being enslaved. That's yeah. not like, it's really frustrating reading the things that either Joel Chandler Harris said about himself or that his daughter said about him uh-huh. because uh, like everything he says it, you're just like, you're so wrong. Uh huh. It's so absolutely wrong. Um. But anyway, so he, As he was growing up, the thing that was kind of the saving grace, I guess, for um, his life and his future achievements was that they did, he and his mom did get a lot of help from prominent white people in their town. Uh, A doctor, not the doctor that he was named after, but a doctor had a cottage in the back of his property that Joel Chandler Harris and his mother lived in when he was growing up and... Later, when he was a teenager, he was a printer's devil, which I did not know Uh... what that (laughs) meant. So I looked it up. So a printer's devil is basically it's being an apprentice, except that you're not apprentice. You're basically doing all of you're not learning how to do the job. You're just
0: assisting and doing.
1: Yeah. You're just being sent on a lot of errands running around cleaning. Like without stuff being up.
0: on the path of like becoming a printer. Like here I am apprenticing you in a way that I'm training you to become a printer on your own. It's like, no, we know that you're never going to be a printer, but I need someone to do these things.
1: Yeah. It was basically just the, like child labor to just <laughs> make him do stuff. But uh, Joel Chandler Harris got to live on. The property or in the house of the printer uh-huh. who uh the publisher of that newspaper.
2: Yeah.
1: And it was there that Harris got to meet the people who would later tell him the stories that would become his books of Uncle Remus. Um, so this is a quote from Julia Harris speaking about her father, Joel Chandler Harris. She wrote. When the work and play of the day were ended and the glow of the light would not would be seen in the Negro cabins, Joel and the Turner children, the publisher, his last name was Turner, would steal away from the house and visit their friends in the slave quarters. Old Harbert and Uncle George Terrell were Joel's favorite companions. And from a nook in their chimney corners, he listened to the legends handed down from their African ancestors, the lore of animals and birds so dear to every plantation Negro. So there's a lot of bad things about the quote, but uh, one thing that I do appreciate is that they named two people, Old Herbert or Herbert, it's H A R B E R T, and Uncle George Terrell, because those were the people whose stories uh, Joel Chandler Harris appropriated.
2: Yeah,
1: and became the Uncle Remus character. And I think mm. that it's important to name those people. Yeah. Because, so it's cool that we know
0: who it is that he got this stuff from.
1: Yeah, I'm like, they deserve to be named because Joel Chandler Harris took over the kind of heritage of these stories and basically stole them away from the culture that they belong to.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so I do think it's important to name them. It also shows this mindset that's a big problem that... Joel would talk about these people as if they were his friends
2: Mm -hmm.
1: when the relationship was obviously way more complex than like friends or even like a kindly uncle. Like it's way, way more complicated than that because like these people weren't necessarily sharing these stories with Joel because they felt some kind of like, kinship or familiarity with them or anything in fact there are some scholars that think because of how violent and graphic the stories are with brer rabbit uh attacking other the other animals or the animals usually get their comeuppance in a very violent fashion yeah and some people even theorize that like while joel was listening to those stories the people who were telling him the stories were having a laugh at his expense mm-hmm. because what they were saying was an encoded thing about like how awful they thought white people were yeah. and the things that they wanted to do wish that they were empowered to do to white people. And so the idea that, you know, Julia Harris thinks that like these people were her father's like friends. Mm hmm. It just kind of shows that mentality. I mean, Joel Chandler Harris himself, he was really nostalgic for what he thought of as like the good old days, like plantation life. Yeah. And he would later describe his Uncle Remus character as having, quote, nothing but pleasant memories of the discipline of slavery. (sighs) It's like, oh. Probably not. Yeah, it's like, no, no. Your Uncle Remus character... Can't possibly be based on uh, reality, and that that is the main problematic element also with Songs of the South is that Walt Disney kind of carried forward that idea, reading in those stories, Mm -hmm. um, that the times when slavery was considered okay in the United States, the idea that those were the good times, is awful. The yeah. I- the idea that like African people and their ancestors enjoyed what was happening or that like it wasn't as bad as some people might say like, no, enslaving people is horrible and it's awful. Yeah. And to act like it's this pleasant time that we should go back to or that deserves emulation, like it's wrong. It's just wrong. And yeah. that's why, I mean, because a lot of people who don't necessarily know Song of the South or the history of these tales, sometimes they point to the story of the Tar Baby and they say, oh, because, like, Tar Baby is racist. The term Tar Baby has become racist from that sto- from people knowing about, like, that story. Uh-huh. But that's not why Song of the South is racist. Yeah. And why, like, it's, it's a movie that should not see the light of day in the context of a cartoon.
0: Yeah, I'm not actually even familiar what that story is about or what the history of it is or anything. I
1: was going to tell you. So Joel Chandler Harris, he would listen to all these stories when he was like a young teenager. And he apparently had very fond memories of these times that he just enjoyed sitting and listening to these stories. And it was wonderful. So William Owens was an was an author, and he published an early version of the Tar Baby story, the story of Bro Rabbit and the Tar Baby. And it was published and put into a newspaper that Joel Chandler Harris read, and Joel Chandler Harris hated the story because he said that they had ruined it, that William Owens had ruined it the way that he wrote it. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to read you a section of it. I read it out loud to my husband, and I suddenly was like, oh, yeah, I see what his problem was with it. So this is kind of in the middle of this story. Bra Rabbit, who has as little regard for truth as for honesty, replies, attempting to throw all the blame upon the deceitful maiden by whom he had been entrapped, not even suspecting yet, so we are to infer, that she is made of tar instead of living flesh. He declares with all the earnestness of injured innocence that he was passing by in the sweet, honest moonlight in pursuit of his lawful business when this girl hailed him and decoyed him into giving her a kiss and was now holding him in unlawful duriance. So that was a section of very flowery language. Yeah. It sounds to me like almost like some of the later writings of like grim fairy tale books where they were like, Oh, we want to like spice this up, make it sound more literary. Yeah. So because this sounded so literary of a, like a European literary fashion, Joel Chandler Harris was like, no, the way that they wrote it completely robs it of the way that it sounded to me. When I heard a black person tell the story, he doesn't Mm -hmm. use the term black person. I want everybody to know because I, I don't want people to think that he didn't say <laughs> <laughs> other things. Um, but he, he was like, it doesn't sound the way that I remember hearing it from a black person. And so he did what can only be described as literary blackface. And he decided that he was going to rewrite the stories in the way that he felt black people talked. Except mm-hmm. it is absolutely just a minstrel blackface literary mess, yeah, because he was like, oh no i I'm, I'm like, I don't even want to try to like read what the way that he wrote it because like it only will come out sounding racist yeah, the way that because it, uh, it's it's bad, and it's frustrating, too, because at the same time, we've talked about Zora Neale Hurston. Uh-huh. There became a writing style called, I think, it was the Black Vernacular Literary Tradition. Uh-huh. And they write, and Zora Neale Hurston, she did this, where she, the, when she wrote down the stories, she wrote it as the people were speaking it. Mm-hmm. The difference between the way that she wrote it down And the way that Joel Chandler Harris wrote it down, I feel like can only be explained as like, you know when comedians would pretend to sound like a Chinese person and they would just make offensive Chinese sounds. Yeah, like I'm doing air quotes because it wasn't, it's like the difference between that and just like an actual Chinese person talking.
2: (laughs) Yeah.
1: Because he wasn't, necessarily representing the actual way that black people talked he was writing a stereotype of what what he he felt they sounded like instead of the actual like african-american vernacular english right which is like a real thing yeah and zora neale hurston because she herself was an african-american and grew up around people who spoke African-American vernacular English. Yeah, she she knew. Yeah, she knew how to write it down to where when you're reading it, it sounds like the way that her family talked. Yeah. As opposed to what Joel Chandler Harris did, which was just take the stereotype of black people and knock it up for the... Like what the dramatic felt,
0: effect of the story.
1: Exactly. That he felt like, oh, this is what it sounds like to listen to a black person tell a story, which is so, it's so wrong. Yeah. So, and then not only did Joel Chandler Harris take these stories and appropriate them out yeah. of like away from the culture that they belong to, he also made really good living from it. Mm-hmm. He made a lot of money making like book after book after book and what that also did was it took these stories that belonged to this group of people and it it made it be part of other people's childhood who like i'm just going to say like didn't deserve those stories because they didn't appreciate them right one of those people being Walt Disney Because like Walt Disney then grew up hearing those stories and felt like, oh, this belonged to my childhood. This should belong to all like white American childhood because it's this like nostalgic feel-good stories that are framed around this old black man giving these stories to a little white boy in the the frame narrative of Joel Chandler Harris's book. And so Walt Disney decided that he was going to basically do the same thing. And there was...
0: For a a modern audience.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It's
0: like, oh, no, Walt.
1: (laughs) Walt, no. And I want to read... This is a quote from Alice Walker, who wrote the book The Color Purple and a lot Mm. of other books. Right. And in this essay called Dummy in the Window... She wrote a little bit of what it was like for her going to see Song of the South when she was a kid growing up. Our whole town turned out for this movie. Black children and their parents in the colored section, white children and their parents in the white section. The film was vastly alienating in two ways not only from the likes of Uncle Remus, in whom I saw aspects of my father, my mother, in fact, all black people I knew who told these stories, but also from the stories themselves, which passed into the context of white people's creation, the same white people who, in my real everyday life, would not let a black person eat in a restaurant or through their front door, I perceived as meaningless. And so, to her, as a black person, These stories that she had grown up hearing from like her parents because they were part of her heritage as an African American. Mm -hmm. She then had to like go in a theater and watch these stories be given to white children as if Mm -hmm. they were part of their heritage. Yeah. And the stories had gone through. like layers of white people to get to those children where it was joel chandler harris taking them and then also walt disney taking them so like these white men had taken them made them their own and then gave her cultural heritage to all of the white kids in america who at the time all thought that you know like she didn't deserve to be even in the theater or near them in a restaurant or whatever yeah. but now her heritage was being given to them.
0: Yeah, that is really sad.
1: And here's another quote from Alice Walker because I I realize you and I are just two white people and so we don't have yeah. like the black representation to say like how that would feel and what it feels like now in America. So another quote from her essay, Dummy in the Window. The worst part of being in an oppressed culture is that the oppressive culture, primarily because it controls the production and dispersal of images in the media, can so easily make us feel ashamed of ourselves, of our sayings, our doings, and our ways. And it doesn't matter whether these sayings, doings, or ways are good or bad. What is bad about them, and therefore worthy of shame, is that they belonged to us. Mm -hmm. And... The way that Joel Chandler Harris presents Uncle Remus and these stories is just kind of the like, oh, look at the quaint way that African-Americans tell stories. Like, look at their their English that doesn't sound like our English, like the way that they are, the values that they have. They're not the same as ours. Look how quaint they are. Mm -hmm. And Walt Disney, like, took that, amplified it and showed it. To the world, yeah, in Song of the South, and I'm like I can't even imagine what that would feel like, and one thing that I appreciate in this book, and I do think if people are interested, it is a thick book and it's full of <laughs> essays and stories, um the annotated African American folk tales there is such like a rich cultural heritage available that was. That are from African Americans that the world can enjoy and appreciate and study. In one of the essays uh, inside the annotated African American Folktales book that everybody should go out and get, they talk about how these stories can be reclaimed and how they are being reclaimed by African Americans and different storytellers today, like Toni Morrison and Alice, Alice Walker also did work to do that. But there are lots of storytellers who can reclaim these stories and take them back from what was happened to them. And so I actually appreciate that the Disney company has stopped putting out Song of the South, that they are saying that they're not planning on putting it out there. I disagree with the idea when people are like, oh, but it should still be available available for quote unquote like educational purposes. Because uh-huh. I'm like, no, people who are actually studying it for educational purposes, they can find it just easily. Uh-huh. Like there are places where you can hunt it down and find it like online at different periods of time. There's enough written about it and recorded about it that people who are studying it for educational purposes can look at it and tell you where the problematic elements are in it. Yeah. I feel like the people who are saying that like, "Oh no, it should be made available for like other people to see for educational purposes." Like, no. No. And that's it's a bad argument. And I'm glad that Disney is kind of not pushing the Uncle Remus stories out anymore because it gives space for those stories to be forgotten in that context. Mm-hmm. And that then creates space for people to come and give them a second life that they deserve through the lens of African-American authors.
0: Yeah. That is a really interesting and kind of complex thing to think about, especially like in the context of a podcast where we retell these stories in our own way and share them with people like to always be conscious and thinking about which we, I think we, we try to always, you know, being conscious of like, where did the, how did I get this story? Who recorded it first? What lens is it being presented to me through that might be altering, you know, what's going on. And I think it is great. Like you're saying too, is like the importance of being able to forget it is so that we can experience it. Like for like, I've never seen this song of the South. I could see stories that were from there, but from a way that, actually come from the the right culture and get to experience it more fully without, I don't know. I'm not, I don't know what I'm trying to say, but
1: yeah, that you're, you're like glad that there is that, that gap so that we can uh, reuse them. Oh, and you had asked earlier, you were like, Oh, I don't think I really know the story of like Tar baby that well. And then I like went off on, who took it from who and stuff, but I never really like told the story <laughs> of Tar Baby. So very quickly, because there are lots of lots of different uh, versions and variants like on the story. And the thing that connects them together is this idea of, it's two things, the the sticky figure, which can be sticky for a number of like different reasons. So the sticky figure, and then also the outwitting to get away. Mm-hmm. So there once was a fox who was trying to get Br'er Rabbit, Brother Rabbit, whatever you want to call him, the rabbit figure, the hare, the trickster hare, which also is there's stories in Africa with a specifically a trickster hare. So yes, this story goes back to Africa. <laughs> which I'm like, thank you. I guess Joel Chandler Harris for believing that and pushing that idea. Like at one time, that's really the only thing we can thank him for. Um, <laughs> it's a problem, but anyway, so Wolf was trying to catch a hare, And so he dressed up a sticky figure, whether with honey, which I guess now the, the ride splash mountain They never show a baby made out of tar. They only show the rabbit caught in some honey. Mm. And so even that they're trying to like distance themselves from what was the stories that were told within Song of the South. They told three different tales in Song of the the South through cartoon animation.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Anyway, (laughs) The ride wants to distance himself from the image of a baby made out of tar because it has become an offensive term because people have turned it into an offensive term since that point. Right. Referencing back to that Uncle Remus story. So that racist term is complex too because it was not intentionally or at the time that it was written, it wasn't ever meant to... Be a to racist. Be racist,
0: term. but it just became that along the way.
1: Yeah. Which I absolutely cause people have asked me, like, do you think the tar baby is a racist term? And I'm like, it is, because language means something, and if it means something today, it doesn't matter what it meant in the eighteen hundreds. Yeah. If what it means right now is racist. So it's like, yes. <laughs> like <laughs> it is. Don't ever call somebody that. So anyway, the wolf makes a sticky figure sometimes they make it in like the figure of like a woman because i guess that's like more alluring Uh and the uncle remus story that he wrote down that joel chandler harris wrote down it is a female rabbit it seems like Uh but in song of the south it's not um but anyway makes a sticky figure and the rabbit comes along and says something like oh how do you do miss and the like figure doesn't say anything back. And then they're like, if you don't say hi to me, I'm gonna slap you in the face. And it doesn't say anything, obviously, because it's just a doll. <laughs> and then they slap it, their hand gets stuck, ah, they slap it again. Oh no, both hands, they headbutt it, oh it's head stuck. Now they're pushing on it with their feet, and pretty soon they are just like held in this blob. So then along comes the wolf laughing because he caught them, uh, or caught the rabbit that he had wanted to catch. And then he's like, oh, I'm going to cook you in a stew or I'm going to beat you to death or whatever. And whatever the threat is, the rabbit is like, "Like, oh, good. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. I love being cooked like in stew. That'll feel really good to be <laughs> cooked in stew. I was scared that you were going to throw me in the briar patch. And then the wolf is like, oh, well, if that's what you don't want me to do, then that's definitely what I'm going to do to you. <laughs> throws him into the briar patch and then he laughs like you're so stupid i was born in a briar patch and then like runs off so he was able to Uh, to outsmart outsmart their captor and that's really quickly a bunch of different versions of
0: right that story story. all globbed
1: together because i am like nope the fastest way to tell you this story Um, And so you can see, like, the elements of the way that Anansi caught the fairy.
0: Yeah. But then it's interesting. the doll that was sticky stuff. Yeah. Slapping it one hand and the other, like...
1: Yeah. And even kind of, like, the outwitting is a little different.
0: Right, because it goes the other way. Like, the, the one that's caught outwits them to get free, rather than that being the way that they use it to catch the fairies, like in the Anansi story.
1: Yeah. And, unfortunately... The thing about studying these types of African-American folk tales is that the culture that created them, that changed them from the way that they were in Africa, the culture that changed them was a culture of people who had been forced into enslavement. Yeah. And so the stories not all of their stories i really want to stress that because sometimes it gets boiled down to this one thing and that that's the only thing that those folk tales have to offer and it's not yeah but a lot of those stories they they have been changed and put through a lens of enslavement because that's what was happening in the culture and they were changed and affected by the people that that had happened to yeah and so what's it's so complex because it's like, it's beautiful that those stories were able to give a people a sense of collective culture.
0: Yeah.
1: But it's as beautiful. It is. It's, it's a human travesty. Like it,
0: it's
1: horrible that it, that it had to happen as beautiful as it is to say like, like, Oh, it really like something beautiful came out of something horrible. It's like, but, the horrible thing shouldn't have happened. Yeah. Even if something beautiful was created out of it, beautiful things get created out of not horrible things happening. I think. Yeah. I I would have liked to see a world where, you know, that hadn't happened.
0: But that's not the case.
1: But that is not the case. And so as nice as it would be to like, end up like the podcast on like this positive note of like, but look at all the beauty that was created out of like this, like Enormous centuries-long human rights violation. No. Um, Like, no. Millions and millions of people have suffered. And the suffering isn't over yet because there is still systemic racism in the world. So I guess the thing that I would want to add to the conversation that's currently happening in the United States is that there's a lot... Of reflection that needs to go into any system that you are within or any company that you're in, any like academic principle that you study, there is stuff to be looked at and analyzed and changed. And it's really interesting to me that the way that our podcast right now got to the discussion that we're having is because people are looking at places like Disney, And being like, what can you change to do better? And I absolutely do think that if they want to fully bury Song of the South, they need to just, they need to do it. Thank you for listening to The Fairy Tellers. If you are enjoying what we're doing, please support us by leaving us a review or share us with your friends. Special thanks to Andrew Forey for our music and Clarice Inch for our artwork. If you are a dreamer, come in. If you are a dreamer, a wisher, a liar, a hoper, a prayer, a magic bean buyer. If you're a pretender, come sit by my fire, for we have some flax golden tails to spin. Come in, come in. Invitation by Shel Silverstein You were saying the name of his mother that he was bringing her, which I think is hilarious. (laughs) That he's like, also, here's my mother, just for good measure. Yeah, it's it's like,
0: like no one asked him for his mother, but he's like, I'm going to bring her along anyway, so...